what's going to happen here now is Paul is beginning his third missionary trip. Uh, and as he begins his third missionary trip, he goes back to Ephesus. And now he will spend about three years of his life in Ephesus. It will become one of the principal churches that he works on, the church that he established and the church that he will later write many letters to in Ephesians. Uh, and it is, it's, it is an interesting place. We've talked about it. It has about 300,000 people in it. It contains the temple uh, of Artemis, where, where Diana, uh, the statue of Diana is there, a pagan goddess. This enormous, enormous temple. It's a football field and a half uh, wide by a football field long uh, with enormous columns and, and pagans from all over the place come and worship it. And it has become, because of this, it is a center for the occult. Dark powers. Satan is encamped here. And we're going to see things in Ephesus and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and powers and miracles manifested here that we're not necessarily going to see anyplace else. And so it's going to be an example to you about what happens when God com comes face to face with evil. And there's an example for us here as to how we have to lead our lives and what we need to consider in that. And so beginning with Acts chapter 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Now, this is a funny question to ask somebody because they are believers. It says they are disciples, they are believers. And what you have here is an unusual circumstance that you probably wouldn't have at any other time because what you have here are people who are effectively disciples of John the Baptist. They are coming out of the Old Covenant. They had heard John. They were baptized in water uh, by John or his disciples and as such considered themselves disciples. Yet Paul recognized that there was something defective, something deficient. And what was deficient was that since they had not really understood the cross, did not have the gospel of the cross, did not have the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and did not have an understanding of the Holy Spirit, that effectively they needed to be saved. Uh, and it's important for you as you go through this um, to understand the differential, the differential between uh, what effectively Paul, uh, John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles, if you would, with me to Matthew chapter 3, just so we get this clearly understood. And I spend this amount of time here on these theological points because it will be important later for your faith. You need to understand these. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is John the Baptist speaking about his very baptism itself. And it says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, 
whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Amen. In other words, my baptism is a baptism of repentance. My baptism is a baptism of pointing. My baptism com completes the Old Covenant in which the entire Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament, all the prophets foretold of the day when a Messiah would come. And now in preparation for the very Messiah coming, I am here because God wanted me here to prepare the ground for Jesus. And in order to prepare the ground for Jesus, you need to repent. And this baptism is a baptism of repentance. Got it? But one will come after me, far greater than I, Jesus. And when he baptizes you, it will be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that today as you understand the whole theological implications of what that means and how the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, completes us and what it's about. And so this, was, this is an important, important aspect uh, uh, of understanding this early part of, of uh, the church. And what you need to know about Acts is Acts is a transitional book. Because in Acts, what you see is you see the church age beginning. The church age begins with Pentecost. And with Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit comes down and, and baptizes the church, it now transitions through Acts as the church is expanded from the Jews who were in Jerusalem on Pentecost to the Samaritans to the Gentiles in Cornelius as it spreads out through the world. And you're going to see that, and we're going to study that. But this is an unusual situation. Yes, sister. Baptism by fire refers to, the question is, what does the baptism with fire mean in this verse? What it means is that in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit descended on the 120 in the upper room, it appeared, according to the Bible, as cloven tongues of fire. When you looked out, it just gives me chills to even think about it. When you looked out and you saw in this congregation of people, you actually saw as they were speaking in tongues, you actually saw cloven tongues of fire, meaning it was as if fire was palpably above them. We have to recognize the power of the Holy Spirit is enormous. So when it says fire, there was literally the appearance of fire in that upper room, literally. And now we know that there's also a spiritual significance of fire today, meaning that when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we give our heart to God, there, the fire is that the fire begins to work inside our heart, and it's as if we have a pilot light. And here's the thing. You have a pilot light that, that's representative of the Holy Spirit. And every day of your life, it, it basically is like having a pail in which the water comes out of you. The Spirit comes out of you as you w walk in this life. And you then have to ask God to refill you. You go before God and you, you sanctify yourself and you pray and you do Bible studies and you read the Bible and you get before the Lord and you ask for constant refilling. refilling. And it's, as you do that, the pilot light gets turned up more and more 
and more. And when you says you do this and you devote yourself more and more in a godly life, sanctifying yourself, this is what we talk about, turning up the pilot light in your life and getting more on fire for God and going and do things today that you wouldn't do five years ago for the Lord and speaking to people today that you wouldn't have done five years ago for the Lord and going to Alabama or Mississippi and taking care of people that are, that are needy because they're hurting. You wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. You would have stayed here in Naples. Why go? Because now the Holy Spirit is in you and it says go. Go. And when it says go, you have to go. You have to go. And the same thing happened with me. Well, God just made me know that I had to teach a Bible study in Port Royal. I didn't understand it, but it was as if I had this overwhelming thought that I had to do it, I had to do it, and, that, and finally it was the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. So that's what this, this fire is about. And so here he is as he, as he confronts these 12 disciples, and they tell him, we don't even know about the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? And so what does he say? He said in verse 4, Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? It means that on hearing that, that message, they accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ. They accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they were baptized in water. Okay? Baptized in water. Continuing. After they were baptized in water, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Now, you'll say to me, Brother John, what is this about? I thought you said that when you accept Jesus Christ, that on accepting Jesus Christ, instantaneously, the Holy Spirit seals us. This does not seem like that's the case. It is not the case. And what you need to do is turn, if you would, to the notes that I gave you, and because it's important for you to understand that there are five examples in the book of Acts in which tongues are spoken at the time that people are converted. And the question becomes, what is the significance of the tongues in those issues, in those instances, as distinguished from what we see for the church today. And that's what I'm going to focus on so we get the proper theological basis for this. You'll see in that chart that uh, the first time tongues were spoken was at Pentecost. And who, who were these speakers? Well, there were 120 gathered in the upper room, correct? Who were the upper uh, 120? They were all of the disciples of Jesus. They were the 12 apostles, the 11 apostles, really, uh, the one replacement apostle. They were all of the followers of Jesus, okay? All of the extended disciples. There were 120 gathered in the upper room, and Jesus told them on his ascension, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit. Fifty days after the ascension, 50 days after the ascension, on the Feast of Pentecost, and it's the, the Feast of Pentecost is important because that's also known uh, in the Old Testament as the first fruits feast, meaning Jews from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem 
to basically worship and sacrifice in thanks for their first fruits. There would be three million people, three million people in Jerusalem at that time. Think about it. Three million people. People from all different countries of the world, Jews from all over the known world would descend. And God knew it. He knew it. And that's why he said, you wait. And so think about this. Just think about how God sets the stage. How God sets the stage. Three million people descending all over the world. And they're in the upper room and they're waiting and tarrying and they're praying. And suddenly, suddenly the Holy Spirit descends. And we talked about what it did, how they all began to speak in tongues. But they spoke in tongues in a way that you would not imagine speaking in tongues because they spoke in tongues in which people from every country of the world who were in Jerusalem understood the message of Jesus Christ in their own tongue and in their own dialect. Imagine that. Didn't matter where they came from, whether it was Asia or whether Western Europe or even whether it was Northern Africa, wherever they came from, they heard the message of Jesus Christ preached through the Holy Spirit in their own tongue. And that's why they were to wait until, until the Holy Spirit descended in Jerusalem. And so as a result of that, as a result of that very act, 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. 3,000 people. It's one of the largest uh, evangelical acts that, that, uh, that we'll find in the Bible where 3,000 people come on one day and accept Jesus Christ. And furthermore, when they spoke in tongues, if they had the gift to speak in tongues, they now had the gift of foreign language. Meaning, God gave them the gift to speak that language thereafter so that they could go and speak in a foreign country. They could go and speak and, and be a missionary to the foreign country. It's an extraordinary act. So you have to understand what's going on here. Now, the other example, there are five, the other example where they spoke in tongues is when the Samaritans, Philip goes up to Samaria, you remember, and he brings the gospel to the Samaritans, and lo and behold, the Samaritans accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they become Christians. Well, the Jerusalem church hears this. Samaritans have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can't be. This is a Jewish thing. This is for us. God came for the Jews. We are the chosen people. I can't believe that. So they went up to investigate. Peter and John go up to investigate. And so what happens? When they go up and investigate, what do they find? They find, lo and behold, yes, the Samaritans have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And so what happens? They had not received the Holy Spirit. God was waiting for Peter and John to come up. And Peter and John then put their hands on the Samaritans that accepted. And when he, they put their hands on the Samaritans that accepted, they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. Now, why did they speak in tongues at that point? What was the point? What was the, the, the doctrinal point of having them speak in tongues at that point? It was to give a message to the Jerusalem church, boys, this isn't just for you. This is not just for you. These people are my people. 
And look at the same thing that fell on you at Pentecost now fell on them. And so the message there was for the Jews. Okay? And generally speaking, when tongues are spoken in Acts, tongues are spoken for the unsaved, to give the message to the unsaved world, to prove that there is power with God. Then look at the other example, Cornelius. Cornelius. Cornelius and his, and his whole his family and his extended family are all gathering there. And now Peter is giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as he's giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ, right in the middle of his message, the Holy Spirit descends. It descends, and what happens? They start speaking in tongues while he's preaching. He didn't have an altar call. He didn't have, let's bring some water out, let's have a baptism. Can I see who's getting baptized? Nothing. Nothing. And you understand why, what the purpose of the tongues were there? It was to demonstrate to Peter, you see what I said? How I said that what I made is not unclean? You see how the Gentile world now, now these aren't Samaritans. These aren't half-Jews. These are full Gentiles. How now the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is appropriate for them. And so they, were, they spoke in tongues then as a message to Peter and the disciples that were with him to prove to the Jerusalem church again, again, that the gospel had been widened. And by the way, the example that you saw in Cornelius is effectively the example of today. Meaning, when we accept Jesus Christ today, at the moment that we have what I call a real, real salvation experience, meaning this, we, we accept Jesus Christ, we announce it with our lips, we confirm it in our heart. And when we confirm it in our heart, and we ask the Lord to, to be the leader of our body, to take over our life, when we do that instantaneously on that moment, at that time, the Holy Spirit seals it and confirms it, just as he did with Cornelius. Yes, Dave? Just quickly, for some of us that uh, think we know what speaking in tongues is, but could you more explain a little bit better? So it's, uh... Yes, I will. I will, so that we understand this issue. And the reason that I spend time on this uh, is that I want to make sure that you understand the theological background, the doctrinal background uh, about uh, tongues. And the point of this whole lesson today is to make sure that you understand that but for these five examples that I've given you here, but for these five examples, you will no longer see the issue of speaking in tongues and acts. It ends here, okay? Now, we don't want to get confused theologically. We don't want to get confused theologically and say that the evidence of you receiving the Holy Spirit when you accept Jesus Christ, you got me? When you accept Jesus Christ is only evidenced by you speaking in tongues. Okay? We don't want to make that mistake. And we have good brethren in other denominations who believe that. And we understand that. We love them. We accept them. But frankly, they're wrong. And I know 
I know this doctrine inside out. Okay? All right? There's not many things that I know as well as this. I know this inside out. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something else. This doctrine is divisive. Okay? This is divisive because here's what happens. Here's what happens when we go down this road with this doctrine. Here's what it means. It means this. That if that's what you truly believe, then the only people that have, that have received the Holy Spirit are those people who speak in tongues. And I will tell you something. That statistically, if you study, if you study statistics, uh, and it's pretty simple, the, out of the entire population of the United States, only 2% of the people in the United States are Pentecostal. 2%. And I can tell you further, if you, if you study the statistics of the, of the Pentecostal church, less than 50% of the Pentecostal church speaks in tongues. So, for the time being, let's accept the statistics. Let's not, let's not uh, uh, comment on whether, on whether it's legitimate or non-legitimate. Let's just accept that study that's been done by a number of, of serious theological students. If that's correct, do you honestly believe that less than 1% of the Christians in the United States have the Holy Spirit? It's nonsensical. And furthermore, here's the point. That when you go that way, then you give man. Is a man going to judge my spirituality? Is another man going to look at me and say, Oh, brother, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not spirit-filled. You are down on the food chain. I, on the other hand, am up on the food chain. This is a serious issue. Now, let me go further. This does not mean that I don't believe that there are people that speak in tongues. Okay? Make no mistake about it. There are people who have a gift. We hear it in the Bible, and I'm going to go through it. There's a gift that some people have, a prayer language in which they speak in tongues. It is legitimate. I have seen it. Some people have it. Okay? Alright? It's relatively rare and when Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit when he talks about the very gifts of the Spirit he will put speaking in tongues way down way down meaning let's not elevate this thing higher than it ought to be so the point of what I'm doing here is to, again to demonstrate to you to demonstrate to you that yes Tongues, ex tongues speak. Dave, does that ex if I answered your question satisfactorily? What actually is speaking in tongues? What actually is speaking in tongues? Yeah. Yes. Speaking in tongues is this. Yes. Here's speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues means this. That certain people have a gift that during their prayer language, they will begin to speak in a tongue that's generally not of this world. It will be a tongue, an angelic tongue. Yes, sister? Do they understand it when you No. No. People that speak in tongues, that's right, people that, do, that speak in tongues do not understand what they are saying. There can be a gift of interpretation, okay? And the problem is, the problem is that, generally speaking, there isn't a gift of interpretation. And so what happens is people that have this gift that speak in tongues don't know what they're saying, all right? And... Uh, when they're saying, when they're speaking in tongues, it may edify them as part of their prayer life, okay? They're reaching out to God. This is, a, 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 you know, a gift that God has given them, but they don't know precisely what they're saying other than they are worshiping and praising God, okay? Please 
do not confuse that gift from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. All right? And the time that you accept Jesus Christ. And I want to show you, I want to give you uh, biblical verses uh, that support exactly what I'm talking about here. And uh, let me see if I can get my notes together on this. I wanted to show you, first of all, the chronology laid out by Paul of exactly how, how, uh, uh, what happens at the time that we accept Jesus Christ. Turn if you would. Yes, sister. Yes. 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 Yeah, yes. True, meaning I believe that at the time that he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit, uh, they, they did receive the Holy Spirit, but I believe that the fuller expression of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, yes, that's right. Yes, no, I think, I think your point is, is well taken. Turn, if you would, with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, this is not meant in any way to disparage our, our, our people from other faiths. No way. We respect other faiths. We want to we have brotherhood in the, in, the, in, the God, in the body of Jesus Christ. We don't want to be separated. All right? The point of what I'm saying is anything that divides us, that separates, separates us, is not of God. If it's something that promotes a division, it's not of God. We want to be unified. The whole point of this is unity. And we're all the same in the body of Jesus Christ. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1, and turn with me to verse 13. Here's Paul telling them what you get, what happens to you at the time that you get uh, salvation. Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, put a mark there, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You understand that? At the moment that you believe, you are marked by the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt. You receive the Holy Spirit. So, I don't want you to go around and say to yourself, Oh, gosh, brother, I know I have friends and they're speaking, you know, they believe that unless you speak in tongues, you haven't received the Holy Spirit. Folks, nonsense. Okay? I want to make sure you understand that. And I will continue to show you, you biblical truth. Yes, and John, Ed. I presume that after we've been marked with the Holy Spirit, that uh, Satan cannot mark us with 666. That, that's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Once you're accepting the Holy Spirit, once God has saved you, once he's put that mark on you, who shall separate us from the love of God? Who? Nobody. No one. No power. No principality. No evil. No work. No one can separate us once, once we have accepted Jesus Christ to that extent. Turn, if you would, with, to me, with me, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. He's explaining to them what, what are the gifts in the Spirit. What's going on in the Corinthian church? Now, verse 27. This is Act, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Now, he poses the question. And in Greek, when you pose the question like this, the answer is given as no. Are all teachers? No. Rather, excuse me. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Like, uh, and are, do, do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? No. 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 Do all interpret? No. But eagerly desire the greater gifts. The greater gifts. He's listed the greater gifts. He's listed them. First, apostleship. Second, prophecy. Prophecy here basically means uh, speaking about God. Speaking about God. Third, teaching. And he goes on and lists, the, he goes on and lists them. So the point of this is, do all speak in tongues? No. No, 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 no. So don't get yourself wrapped around a minor theological point that's misinterpreted and confuse yourself and I can't tell you how many people I know carry this baggage for the rest of their life. For the rest of their life. I can't tell you people that I've met that are in their 70s and 80s and have humbly come to me and said to me, I just feel bad. I know I've never received the Holy Spirit. And they've been Christians their whole life. And I, and I look at them and I feel like crying and, and hugging them because this is what happens when you get bad theology. That's bad theology. That's why we spend the time that we do here to study the Bible, because you need to have good theology. You need to understand how God works. And you can't imagine the damage that's wreaked on people when they do this. It's, it's just, it's unbelievable. And so I wanted to make sure that we understand this issue. Uh, and I know my wife says, sometime I look like I beat a dead horse. I'll let the horse go. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, brother. Um, I've always wondered um, in the early days when someone spoke with tongues, everyone could validate that because they could compare notes and say, I understand from my language and you understand from your language, which would, you know, would be a miracle, not this miracle. When did it transition to meeting an interpreter when no one Great question. Brother said, you know, I know originally in Pentecost when tongues were spoken, Everybody understood. There was somebody that understood it. Somebody was present that understood the language that was being spoken in tongues. When did it transition into something that became unknown? 
Well, brother, the answer is I don't know when it transitioned, but I can tell you that Paul speaks about it. And who better than Paul to speak about this? Uh, turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I bet you're surprised that I can actually pull out. And <laughs> it's almost as if I gave you the question to ask me. Thank you, my cousin. He's, it's good having a relative in the... It's good having a relative here when you need, when you need one. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, okay? Uh, and this is, a, you've, you've, answered, you've asked a great question. Uh, and, uh, and so here he is. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He's writing a letter because the Corinthian church is falling apart and they are misusing their gifts, misinterpreting uh, scripture, and one of the issues that they're, they're messing up big time is on the issue of tongues, brother. And so he writes this chapter in which he corrects. He corrects what's going on. And so here's what he says. Uh, uh, and so he's talking about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Okay? That's the gift you should you should desire. And when he says prophecy, he means being able to explain uh, God and his, and his scripture. All right? That's effectively what he's talking about. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. You're speaking in an unknown tongue. You're edifying yourself. You're not edifying the body of the church. Continue. But everyone who prophesies, prophesies, speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. Amen? Amen. You understand now? You're getting an understanding of what's important here? You speak in a tongue, a foreign tongue, and obviously the tongue here at this point is a tongue of angels. That's right, you see it? All right, and nobody understands what you're saying. You're not edifying the body of church. You're speaking to God, and that's, that's legitimate. You're worshiping God, that's legitimate, but you're not edifying the church. And so he continues to talk about this. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. Meaning, it's great. If God gave you the gift of speaking in tongues, that's great. But on the food chain of what I'd rather have you be, I'd rather have you understand God's word. All right? So that you can edify men. This, I mean, this is a powerful, this is, this is a, a powerful uh, uh, section. And take a look at verse 19. And now he's telling you he speaks in tongues. All right? He speaks in tongues. So who better, who better to comment on this issue than the guy himself who says, I speak in tongues. And look what he says. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
No, no, I don't think I would be. I don't think I would be frightened if I spoke in tongues. No, huh? Yeah. No, but I wouldn't. But I wouldn't be speaking in tongues. God wouldn't give me that in a in a in a public environment in church because it would be out of order. Okay, God wouldn't break the order of the service. God wouldn't do something that diminishes from the presentation of the word. He would not do that. God would not do that. And and people, you know, yes, sister. Yeah, but I'm, the, the the point is, uh, no, I don't believe that you would be frightened. Uh, typically, it would be in a private moment. All right, it would be in a private moment, but it wouldn't be. Certainly, if if somebody spoke in tongues and interrupted a service, that would not be of God. That would not be of God. That would be a temptation. And and so people, you know, th this is something that can be controlled, and I and, and it's important. Uh, because he then says in the next words, brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. And so in verse 22, look what he says. Tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. You heard that from somebody else today, didn't you? Yes, Dorothy. Well, you know, I think the point of it being this. God gave him a gift, okay? God gave him a gift. But he's told us that that gift on the food chain of gifts is not apostle, is not prophecy, is not teaching, is not administration, is not helps. It's at the bottom. It's a gift. But it's looking at it from everything. Yes, it's a gift. But it's not the reason, it's not the reason that he's been, he got the gift to write the epistles. He got the gift to write the epistles because God declared him the apostle for the Gentiles. Amen? Amen. And that's it. Yes, sister. You have a well, he came into the church. He came into the church, and I guess what he saw was everybody babbling at once. All right? This was not an edifying environment. This was not an environment that you could bring people in to meet God. You're going to meet God. He says you come in, you look like a bunch of drunks. He says that in another place. In other words, people who would come into a service and saw this unrestrained, unrestrained action would be shocked, frightened. They wouldn't be drawn to God. They wouldn't be uh, educated by God. So the point of what I'm telling you is this. I want to make sure you understand the doctrinal issue about this. And this is clear. Are there tongues? Yes. Do people speak in tongues today? Yes. Is it a gift? Yes. Do some people have a gift of interpretation of tongues from time to time? Yes. Okay. Is it a gift that's up there with the top gifts in the church? No. You heard him say it out of his mouth. As far as I'm concerned, there's no better witness. So that all being said, the one thing I want to go back to to make sure I've tied this lesson up clearly is when you accept Jesus Christ, when you accept him as your Lord and Savior, instantaneously at that moment when he, you tell him, Lord, please forgive me for what I've done. Accept me, Lord, as your child. I, I accept you as my Savior, as the creator of this world. Take over my life at that moment, irrespective of water, irrespective of baptisms. You are saved and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. I want you to understand this. All right? I don't want you to go through life 
being confused. And I'm going to tell you something else. The water baptism has nothing to do with salvation. All right, let's clarify that. Okay, all right. Jesus didn't turn to the thief after the thief, the thief said to him, Lord, please remember me today in paradise. And Jesus didn't go say, you know, it's too bad we don't have water. It's just too bad. I could have made this right, but we don't have water. You know, and so, you know, I know we're Baptists. All right, I know we're Baptists, but let's understand something. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism is your public testimony to the world. All right? It's your public testimony to the world that you've accepted Jesus Christ. It's your initiation into a body of believers. All right? You are obedient. You are being buried in Christ and rising up again. But don't, 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 don't say baptism is the ticket to salvation. It's like Hayes said this morning. It's funny. We must have been comparing notes. You know, you don't need catechism. You don't need to go to class. All right? You, in your humble way, accepting Jesus Christ at that moment, you're there. You're accepted. You're in the community of believers. It's no question about it. You're in the community of believers. And so I want to do this so that I'm clear about, about making this example separate and apart from, the, from what's normally the way we understand the world today. But we love our other brothers. There are people that don't believe this, and we accept them. We embrace them. We love them because we want to be one in the body of Jesus Christ. We want to be unified. So I'm not going to let an issue like this divide me. I'm still, I'm not going to let this divide me. If they believe that, that's okay. They still accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's okay. I just want you to understand how this issue comes, what it's about, and why this is important. And so... Moving on, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. you got to love this guy. Stonings, beatings, jailings, court. And what does he do? He goes back to the synagogue. He goes back to the synagogue, wherever he is. He goes back because that's where God directed him to go back in obedience. But some of them arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. That's a shock. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? He goes for three months in the synagogue. He's preaching the word and finally, they become obstinate. They don't want to hear it. And so what does he do? He shakes the dust off his feet. You don't go forever. He shakes the dust off his feet, and he goes into this uh, hall, lecture hall, which apparently, according to commentaries, is not that far away from the synagogue. And he camps out there, and he camps out with the disciples. And some of those disciples were the 12 guys who he anointed and baptized earlier up in this chapter, okay? They become the bedrock of the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus is going to become really one of the jewels, one of the jewels in, in, uh, in the New Testament. And we're going to see that. And so continuing on, verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick 
and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Now, Brother John, what is this about? You know, when I watch cable TV and I turn the dial, and I get up into those 200s and 300s, and I'm so all of a sudden I'll see some programs where somebody will be up there, a, a, you know, apparently a televangelist or some minister from some place, and the next thing I'll see is a prayer cloth, a 1495 prayer cloth, that you get this prayer cloth, and this prayer cloth has miraculous power. Turn the TV off. Turn the TV off. Take that channel off your television, okay? Because let me tell you something. The fact that this time, during this time, when God is coming face to face with evil in Ephesus, where he's confronting the personification of evil, the personification of the occult, things are taking place here that will never take place again. And when you look in the Bible, you will see several periods of extraordinarily miraculous times. Moses, in that period with the Jewish people. Elijah, slash Elisha, and now here. And so what do you think was happening here? These prayer cloths were actually aprons that Paul used in the tent-making process. And so the work was spreading so miraculously that his disciples, where he couldn't go everywhere, were just taking these things, and God was blessing it, and people were being healed. But make no mistake about it. This does not portend that we can take something today and, and, and ship it to somebody and say, pray with this, this will bless you, this will cure you. Folks, that's idolatry. You are raising something above the Lord Jesus. That's a sin. That is a sin. And what happens is what you see, and what we're going to see here is that whenever God works, whenever there is a power of the Holy Spirit working, Satan comes in and mimics. Satan will come in and mimic. And we're going to see that. And Paul talks about that, in fact, that very issue about mimicking, mimicking uh, uh, the uh, evil. Evil. And, and uh, I want to see if I can find the verse that I wanted to point your attention to there. Yes, that's exactly right. Turn if you would, exactly. Turn if you would to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. Because this is a lesson for you today. Not everybody that says they're from God is from God. Not everybody that says that they're a messenger of light is a messenger of light. Not everything that you see on TV that appears to be evangelical is evangelical. Turn to, with me, if you would, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Oh, my dear Lord. Imagine Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He doesn't appear as a horned toad with a pitchfork and a tail. 
All right? He's, he knows you're too sophisticated for that. You're too smart. You spent your life in church. He's going to appear with you. He's going to have class. He's going to be civilized. My father used to call them white glove demons. Okay? The white glove. Very classy. Very classy. Parading as an angel of light. And you're going to see that here in Acts. Where, where these people masquerade as, as men of God. And in fact, they're men of, of Satan. And so I'm going to submit to you that you need to have discernment of spirit. When you watch TV, when you pick up books, when you read the newspaper and you hear some of these accounts about what goes on in the evangelical world, folks, it's not all good. And that's where you need the Holy Spirit to give you discernment. Yes. Yes, slain in the spirit. Brother, we'll do that next week because it's 12 o'clock. <laughs> That's, that's a great, good question. We'll talk about that next week. Slain in the spirit. Because if I don't get you out of here by 12 noon, I'm going to get slain by my wife. And so, that's right. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that you've been with us today, Lord. We feel your presence and the Holy Spirit here. We thank you for the words that you've given us, Lord. We ask you that they, these words be anointed, that they be enlarged in our heart. That, they, that we grow, Lord, with them. I ask you also to protect these people wherever they go, these dear people who come from all over this town. Put a wall of protection around them, Lord, and bring them back again next week so that we can continue to study the word. We put all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.